Welcome to the Four Preaching Channel. Today we'll be finishing up Matthew 2. And so I want us to kind of grapple with this idea that Jesus' life and ministry was not dedicated to appealing everyone, nor was it designed to make everyone feel included. Jesus' life and ministry was about proclaiming the Word of God, and ours should be too. Now, one of the aspects of the life and ministry of Christ that I want us to be aware of is that this was not an accident. Now, I realize Christ's life not being an accident doesn't seem like a startling revelation. It seems fairly obvious. But as we read through today's passage, I want you to watch and see how God directs the situation to put Jesus right where he wanted him to be. So, if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23 as we finish up Matthew 2. So, Matthew 2, 19 through 23 says this, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we've been kind of watching as the story of Jesus' parents and, you know, Jesus' birth unfolds. And we've been, we've watched how Jesus has identified with the sort of the bitter history of Israel and all the things Israel has been through. Um, and it's worthwhile to note, as we, as we kind of begin to step into this, that there are no Old Testament references that refer to Jesus as a Nazarene. It just doesn't happen in the Old Testament. So what's, it's a little bit interesting here that Matthew chooses to say at the end there, said it was spoken by the prophets, or what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, to kind of grapple with this idea, we have to kind of have an understanding of uh, what's going on with Nazarene at this, or with Nazareth rather at this time. Um, but to kind of get an idea of what the prophets are saying that Matthew is referring back to. Let's first look at Isaiah chapter 53 verses 1 to 3 because it gives us sort of this picture of the life of the Messiah as the prophets understood it to be that coincides somewhat with this idea of being a Nazarene in first century Israel. So Isaiah 53 1 through 3 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So despised and rejected is sort of the theme of this passage from Isaiah. Despised and rejected is the theme somewhat of Jesus' life here. Our Lord would grow up in the town, this small town called Nazareth, so unnotable that prior to the Gospels it's not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. Now, we don't know a ton about Nazareth. We really know very little about Nazareth in this time period, but we can sort of begin to piece together um, through some other conversations, uh, most notably one in John that we'll look at here in a second. We kind of start to piece together sort of what the people in that time frame would have been thinking about Nazareth, would have been thinking about the people there. So if we hop over to John 
chapter 1, verses 43 through 46, we'll see this interaction happening. Now, Jesus has just called Philip, right? And he has called Philip to come follow him. And we're going to kind of enter the scene, right, as Jesus is, is doing this calling of Philip. And then Philip is going to go and, and find someone else named Nathaniel. But anyway, let's go to John chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. And it says this, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing, or can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Philip said to him, Come and see. So we starting to get this idea here that maybe Nazareth isn't the hometown, awesome hometown we've kind of come to expect, right? We don't, we don't, again, we don't know much, but when a saying like, can anything good come out of Nazareth pops up, it makes us tend to assume that Nazareth is not highly regarded. Um, and what's interesting is there's been a lot of different conjecture and debates, uh, but over at the Desiring God uh, website, uh, one of the editors, David Mathis, wrote a really excellent article about Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. I'll link it in the description, uh, but let me read just a quick excerpt of it from you, from it here for you. So David Mathis said this, During his earthly life, so far as we know, Jesus never self-identified as Jesus of Nazareth. Only rarely did his followers call him that. John 1, 45 here with Philip. Typically, it was crowds unfamiliar with him, such as in Matthew 21, 11, 26, 71, Mark 10, 47, Luke 18, 37, or his foes, such as demons in Mark 1, 24, or Luke 4, 34, false witnesses in Acts 6, 14, and the soldiers who came with the traitor to arrest him, John 18, verses 5 and 7. And while many despised him for his hometown, even his fellow Nazarenes soon rejected him, drove him out of town and threatened to throw him off a cliff, which is found in Luke 4, 28 through 30. Wherever we find his name on the lips of foes who want to give it a derogatory spin, expect them to call him Jesus of Nazareth. And if Nathaniel's comments and the venom of demons and detractors had not been enough, Pilate inscribed it on the instrument of his torture, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. John nineteen nineteen. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, even as a Nazarene. So we must recognize that Jesus did not grow up or live in the mainstream. He was not in the New Yorks or the Los Angeles. He was in the Nazareths. He was in the small town, the small time. Now when, when Joseph, Jesus's uh, uh, adopted father, if you will, uh, is initially told to return to Israel, it appears that he is kind of assuming that he needs to return back to Judea, right? Now, I mean, this is Joseph's like fourth or fifth time, I think, being talked to in a dream. Like at this point, I would be afraid to go to sleep because of how many times he has spoken to in dreams, like this poor guy. Uh, but he gets told in a dream that it's safe to go back to Israel. And so Joseph, with the way that he, this, with the way our passage plays out, kind of kind of leads us to believe that he thought he was going back to Judea, going back to Bethlehem. Because, right, let's just pop back there, right? It says, 
The angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, he was afraid to go there. Interestingly enough, Judea is where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. It is not where Galilee is. Galilee is a separate uh, county, I guess, if you will, um, for lack of a more modern-day term. But Galilee is a separate region. Uh, now, if we were expecting him to go straight there, it's obvious by this thing saying that he was considering going to Judea, that, or that he was worried about Archelaus being king over Judea, proves pretty well that he was headed to Judea, because that's where he was going, and that's why he was afraid. And... After being afraid, he gets another dream warning. Again, poor guy. And this time, it tells him to uh, continue on even beyond that, right? It says, being warned a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, right? You know, he's told to go back to Israel. He thinks he's going back to Judea, maybe Bethlehem. However, God has allowed for Archelaus to be ruling in his father's place. God has allowed that. That's not a mistake. That's not a slip-up. It wasn't something that God wasn't expecting. God knew Archelaus would be the son of Herod and that he would be the next reigning ruler. God sent Joseph and his family to Egypt because of Herod. Archelaus, arguably just as bad as Herod, God is not caught by surprise that Archelaus is in charge now. So when he sends Joseph back, he sends Joseph back knowing full well Archelaus is ruling. And when Joseph becomes worried, God continues to direct the direction of his son's life by warning Joseph in a dream again, presumably not to return to Bethlehem, and probably telling him more specifically to go to Galilee. Now, we don't have the specifics of what that warning is. It literally just says he was warned in a dream, or being warned in a dream, he went on to Galilee. So, right, thus, because of all of this stuff, because of God's sovereign action by allowing Archelaus to be ruling, by calling Joseph back when he did, while Archelaus is ruling, God here is directing Joseph to take his family to almost the exact opposite end of the, the nation of Israel, to live in this small, obscure city known as Nazareth. Which raises a couple of obvious questions. Wouldn't more people have heard Jesus preach if he had started in Jerusalem? Would Jesus have been more accepted as the Messiah if he started in a bigger city? Wouldn't the gospel have moved faster through the earth if Jesus had been more well-known? And the answer to, all these answer to all these questions is simply, maybe, but God knew better. This should be a challenge for each of us, right? Because we are all so busy trying to think through what the best way to do things is. How often do we miss the chances to see what God's way is? If we were in the shoes of Jesus trying to prepare the way for the Messiah of the entire world, our plan would likely not be to put Jesus in a podunk town that people would make fun of him from being from. Our idea would have been to send him to a big city, to send him someplace where he could be well-educated, to send him someplace where he could be uh, influential, where he could be interacting with more people. But God's way was the best way. Now, Romans 8.28 reminds us, and it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, to get, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Jesus is most assuredly called according to God's purposes. And all, as all of this is unfolding, I don't want us to, to lose focus on the main idea, right? The main idea I said at the very beginning that I want us to be paying attention to is that Jesus' life and ministry 
was not dedicated to appealing to everyone, nor was it designed to make everyone feel included. Jesus' life and ministry was about proclaiming the word of God, and ours should be to our lives, and our ministries should be about proclaiming the word of God. So, how will Jesus' hometown affect his ministry? It won't. Jesus' ministry had a singular focus. He didn't need fame or respect or anyone to look at him or care about where he was from in order to accomplish the mission that he had to proclaim the word of God. In fact, Paul would later state in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8 through 8, this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Jesus, we must not seek to be equal with God. When we're watching to see what God's way is, we have to recognize that our mission, our job, is not to be the greatest. It's not to be number one. Jesus' life and ministry is characterized by proclaiming and explaining scripture, despite being despised and rejected, as Isaiah prophesied earlier. And this should comfort us, right? Because if our goal as disciples as Christians, if our goal is to become the most widely known and most notable people in the faith, then that is a heavy, heavy burden. But here, it's being shown to us that our goal, our chief end, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it, is not to be great or to glorify ourselves. Rather, it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him and to proclaim Him Jesus was diligent to preach the gospel where he was, and we are called to faithfully do the same. Now, I want to briefly make a case for that statement, because I think too often we hear something else from well-meaning individuals. We're, we're told that we're supposed to be out there in the world, running around, just hitting people up, you know, arguing them and debating them and convincing them and turning them into Christians and then discipling them and kicking them out the door and getting the next guy and discipling him and kicking them out the door. And we're supposed to be creating these huge followings and that our churches should all be massive and that we should all be, you know, doing cool stuff and yelling in the podium and whatever, right? But that is not what we're called to be as Christians. So let me make three points here for us. First, we are not called to logically battle people into becoming Christians. Now, in response to some people grumbling and coming up with reasons to not believe Jesus, Jesus doesn't argue with them. He simply states in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, in another situation, people are asking Jesus to give them a sign or give them proof of his identity as the Messiah, and Jesus replies in John 10, 25-26, Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Or I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
Did you catch the last part? Because you are not among my sheep, you don't believe me. It doesn't say, because you're not among my sheep, you don't believe Or sorry, it doesn't say, because you don't believe me, you're not among my sheep. It says, because you are not among my sheep, you do not believe me. Both of these events remind us that we are not on the hook, as it were, to get people to believe the gospel. God's job is to change hearts. God's job is to draw people to Christ. We are simply instruments that are working out in this master plan of his. Now this does not give us some sort of free pass to just be running around doing whatever because God's got it. God's going to handle all of the outreach and ministry. Paul, as he's writing to to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, says this, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Be ready in season and out of season. Just because it is God's job to change hearts and minds does not mean that we are called to be lazy slobs that don't have any idea how the scripture works. We are called as Christians to be ready in season and out of season, ready to give an account, to be able to proclaim the name of God wherever we go, regardless of our background or their backgrounds. Even if you are not called to be a pastor, perhaps you're watching this and you are a farmer or a software engineer or a train conductor, whatever the case may be, as a Christian, as a true disciple, you are called to be able to proclaim the name of Christ wherever you find yourself. As we continue on, though, second, the means by which God calls sinners to repentance is through hearing his word. The reason that we need to be ready to give an account, the reason we need to be prepared to proclaim God in and out of season is that the proclamation of his word is one of the tools which God uses to change hearts and minds. Even though I am not on the hook to change hearts and minds, my proclamation of the word, my teaching the scripture and proclaiming the scripture is used by God for that end. Paul summarizes this point nicely for us in Romans 10, 17, which says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, in if we were to go back to the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 22, we'll see the account of Josiah as they're cleaning up the temple. He sends men in to go retrieve all the money and give it to all the people to redo the temple. And as they're, you know, cleaning out the back closet where all like the old hymn books and like the pews full of gum from the youth room are in there probably, they come across this book, this book of the law. And, and the priest brings this book of the law and he walks in to give Josiah an account. He's like, yeah, we're doing it. Everything's good. You know, we've got the chairs with the gum are pulled out. The hymns are thrown away. we got the new hymns in there. Everything's going good. By the way, we found this book. Um, Josiah's like, what? And so they read from this book, the book of the law, the scripture, and they read to Josiah and Josiah and the entire nation of Israel come to repent because of hearing God's word for the first time. Now this should make us clear that we cannot find God by simply going out into the mountains, right? The hearing the word of God proclaimed and being taught, reading it from the Bible, 
These are the means by which God has given us to come and to meet him and to understand him and to know him. We are not told that we can just go out into the wilderness, stare out into the crystal blue lakes, you know, in between a bunch of mountains underneath the stars with like rainbows or something. There is no aspect of the created order that is capable of meeting our need to meet the creator apart from the word of God. All of those things, the beauty of nature, while gorgeous and while they all cry towards God, they do not tell us about God. We need the scripture. To believe in God, as Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs did, as we have seen in Hebrews 11, we must know who he is according to himself. Now, lastly, we are called to proclaim the gospel even though we cannot convince people to become Christians, even though it is not our duty to, pro to change hearts and to change minds, we are still called to teach the scripture, to call people to repentance and to proclaim the gospel. One of the, the toughest things that you find with someone who's just starting to wrestle with things like the five pillars of Calvinism or things like that is you come to this idea, if God elects those whom he'll save, then why should I care? Why should I go out and proclaim anything? It seems as though God's got it handled. Why does he need me? And the reason, the number one reason, is because Jesus said to, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says this, or it says this in Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Now, this was not a suggestion. Jesus was not telling disciples, hey, you know, if you have free time in between all the persecution and being disciples, go make more disciples. No, this was a command. Jesus gave the disciples to go into all nations, baptizing, teaching, or making disciples, baptizing, and teaching them. And he commanded them to make disciples. He did not command them to make followers. He didn't command them just to teach or just to baptize. He commanded them to make disciples. And what do disciples do? Disciples make other disciples. So by extension, we must recognize that, that this command from Jesus, it echoes through and reverberates through the halls of time as they have moved forward through disciple to disciple to disciple. You and I are commanded to make disciples because Christ commanded the disciples to make disciples. And through them and through their people that they would disciple, we are now given the opportunity, given the blessing to be able to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. Paul will reiterate the same sentiment in Romans 10, 14, and 15. And it says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have, not, have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are called to proclaim the gospel 
just like Christ did. Even in our own level of obscurity, we must remember Jesus came and he did not go out seeking fame. He did not go out seeking fortune. He did not go out seeking to be someone that appeases everyone. Christ came to proclaim the gospel and to preach the scripture and to tell people of God's love for them and of their de his desire for them to repent and turn to him. We must be about this as well. We as Christians and as true disciples must be focused on proclaiming the good news to a lost and dying world. Because as one person once said, you may be the only Jesus that this other person ever meets. So as we move into the adult portion of Jesus' life, starting next week, we're going to be moving into John 3, or sorry, Matthew 3, and we'll be getting into the adult ministry of Jesus. Now, as we do that, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus worked hard to proclaim the gospel in his specific context. You too must work to proclaim the gospel in your specific context. Now, next week, we will be taking, I, I misspoke a moment ago, next week we'll actually be taking a short break, a one-week break from our Matthew study. I've been given the opportunity and the blessing uh, to preach in my own uh, church that I attend, that I'm a member at, and so I'll be preaching out of Psalm 21 next week, and so you'll actually get to enjoy that next week in place of our normal Matthew, uh, so the sound quality will be a little better and the video quality will be a little better. Um, but if you would, I I beg you to pray for me as I prepare for this sermon that's coming up on Sunday. I'm not expecting Psalm 21 to be a sermon that is light or that is uh, fun to handle um, as it discusses the idea of people who are with God and people who are enemies of God and the repercussions of that and how does that work out itself out and ultimately how does election come into this this whole scene, this whole thing. So pray for me if you would. As you watch this video, pray for me that I would be honest and truthful and that I would be willing to proclaim the complete and total scripture and not just the parts that I know are palatable to people. Um, so lastly, if you are out there and you are watching this and you're not a part of a local body of believers, I encourage you to go and find a church where you can become a part. In the description, I will link, as always, the church directory website link, um, which is on the website for the Gospel Coalition. And it's a directory of churches that are of like faith and practice to myself. Uh, anyone, any number of the churches on there uh, would be excellent candidates and should be close by to you in some varying degree. And hopefully you can use that list to be able to find a church where you can serve in a context and where you can walk alongside other Christians. Or if you are questioning, what is it? Am I a true disciple? Do I really have a faith in Christ? If these are questions that you need to answer, then you need to go and you need to find a trusted person, such as a pastor of one of these churches, that can talk to you and help you understand the life situations that you're walking through. So that's it for now. With that, I'm Sam. This is for the gospel, for God's glory for preaching.